millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, today we've got something quite special. We've got Leanne Renault with us today, and she's a historian specialising in Caribbean studies. And she's with us to talk about something very specific today. Leanne, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, we're a bit fed up with lockdown now. We're a bit fried yeah. about you. Just enough now. I want a pub. I want someone else to make me a gin and tonic and wash <laughs> the glass after. You sound like you're literally in my head because all I want is a G&T from the pub. Um, and to be out of my flat for yeah. prolonged periods of time without worrying. Yeah, definitely. I think, can like, I make, go on. So, can I make both of you hate me? No. Oh. Yeah, all our pubs have been open for the past couple of weeks, and we can Seriously? Much, yeah. Ugh. But you don't have any friends apart from me, so it's not <laughs> like you can go and enjoy them. That makes that me is, feel better. That is also very true, Alex. I love you so much that I spend all my day with you. I know, and we haven't killed each other yet, probably only because of the distancing. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Leanne is with us to talk about a really specific aspect of slavery today, and I'm really excited because I know nothing about it. I know you don't either because it's not 20th century. We're going to talk about marinage. So Leanne, what is that? Uh, okay, well, I guess the easiest way for me to start explaining it is to explain a bit about kind of um, the Maroons and Marine communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess... Um, the Maroons were groups of formerly enslaved people um, who were able to secure their freedom um, in the Caribbean, but also in um, places in America, in the Deep South, places like Mississippi, for example. Um, And they were able to form these kind of autonomous communities on the outskirts of plantation society. So um, the act of marinage, I guess, is this act of resistance. It's the, the act of kind of securing freedom Uh, it's an act towards liberation I guess is kind of the broadest way to describe it. So what did marinage look like in the Caribbean? So um, marine communities were developed by um, formerly enslaved Africans Um, so marine communities in the Caribbean direct result of the slave trade and when we're talking about marinage I don't think we can kind of um, ever talk about it in a way that's divorced from this kind of um, slavery context. so marinage is kind of this act of resistance against plantations, um, enslaved Africans setting up their own communities. They tended to settle in really kind of rural, almost inaccessible areas for obvious reasons, I guess. The more difficult the area is to access, um, the more difficult the kind of community is to disrupt. So it's all kind of about survival. And um, when, they, when they set up these communities in these, in these places, they tended to kind of do them like um, in very mountainous areas. Um, 
And um, what research tells us is that these communities were particularly good at preserving kind of African cultural traditions. Um, so plantation societies, I guess part of um, enslaving African people, and was also, um, it was also about kind of re-socializing them um, away from their kind, of, their kind of home traditions. Mm. Um, and so this was kind of actively discouraged on plantations. Um, you know, any sort of remnants of um, African cultural traditions were like literally beaten out of the people, you know what I mean? Um, so th- I guess that's part of the resistance of these kind of maroon communities is this resistance of... Um, European cultures and traditions. And even now in Jamaica, so Jamaica, for example, has, um, has a really kind of strong history of, of Maranaj and Maroon communities. Um, and even now, Kuramanti, which is a language spoken in Ghana's Ashanti region, mm. is actually one of the three languages spoken in Jamaica today. I did not know that. Yeah, they, um, it's, it's quite amazing. Like the, the Maroon communities managed to kind of really establish themselves in a few places in Jamaica. And so much so that they they really held on to the language. So they're speaking kind of this, I, I guess it's like a Coromanti Creole or Patois, um, yeah. because it's not it's not kind of like you know the exact language. It's it's a, a Creolized version of it. Um, I'm thinking as well. You're mentioning religion and traditions and cultural traditions. I'm immediately mm. thinking of Haiti. Of course, yes, of course. So I guess um, Haiti. Haiti is one of these, uh, re, um, one of the nations in the Caribbean that is kind of known for having marine communities. But then I guess they take it that one step further because they're able through this act of grand marinage, I guess, to um, establish themselves as the world's first black republic. Um, and, and actually what, you know, um, sort of a- African traditions and African um, s- spiritual systems actually played a really massive part in um, in that revolt, in that revolution. What's the difference between petit marinage and grand marinage? Um, so petit marinage is smaller acts of, of resistance or disruption and grand marinage is, is larger acts. So um, some examples of petit marinage, for example, would be kind of temporarily uh, enslaved people temporarily running away um, from plantations, either by themselves or in small groups. And also things like um, poisoning their enslavers. And so if you look in sort of the diaries of some enslavers in the Caribbean, you can see that they lived in perpetual fear of being poisoned by um, enslaved people. Um, In perpetual fear of particularly um, obia practitioners. Um, When I say obia, um, I'm talking about, um, I guess it's kind of like an African-derived spiritual system that were that is often misunderstood as magic or black magic um but it, it's basically just like very good knowledge um of herbs and plants and how to use them right mm-hmm. and so we can see that enslavers are perpetually terrified of of obia practitioners um poisoning them so that that did happen uh, and that would be a, a an act of petty marinage uh, refusing to work um but also reproductive resistance um, would be an act of, of petty marinage. So women literally refusing to kind of have children on plantations, knowing that these children would be born into, into slavery. And so we, we also see in kind of the diaries of enslavers, um, lots of talk about these Obia practitioners giving women particular herbs um, to kind of create um, miscarriages, essentially, um, because these women didn't want to 
to bear children uh, under these circumstances. Wow. Yeah, so um, really, really, really interesting and, and kind of like a, a very difficult conversation. That's part of a very difficult conversation. Right? Yeah. So what is, is that classed as grand marinage then? No, that, that's still petty marinage. I guess oh, grand wow. marinage would be um, large, large rebellions, um, people removing themselves permanently from plantations. Um, often very violent affairs. So an example of Grand Marinage would be Taki's War in Jamaica in 1760. Um, so Taki was um, enslaved. He was taken from what is present-day Ghana and brought to Jamaica. He was um, a king in his village. Um, and he led a revolt in Jamaica um, over a series of a few months. Um, this was like a, a massive, coordinated, island-wide conspiracy led by this kind of secret network of enslaved Akan people. So again, um, the language becomes a really, really important part of the resistance, right? Because they're able to do this because they cannot be understood by their enslavers. Um, so hundreds and hundreds of people joined this revolt, um, which lasted a really long time, lots of, lots of bloodshed. Um, but that would be an example of grand marinage, these, these kind of massive acts of resistance. I just can't get over you telling us about women aborting their children yeah it's 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 rough it is rough um but but again it, you know what is freedom at, at this yeah. point and and what will you do to ensure that you have it or at least that you're not kind of bringing somebody else into into that horrible environment yeah yeah it's a difficult one so where did maroon communities exist uh, all over the Caribbean, basically wherever there was uh, slavery, there were communities resisting slavery, I guess. Um, most notably, like I said, Haiti, uh, Jamaica, Brazil, um, lots of different places in Latin America, Suriname, which is a, was a, a Dutch colony. Um, also Dominica, which is um, a much smaller island, but there's lots of documentation kind of supporting the, the, the existence of very well-established marine communities. And like I said before, what, what these particular islands um, or nations have in common is that they have very diverse terrains. And so you, you, you're finding marine communities in kind of very mountainous areas that are very hard to access yeah. um, for kind of all of the, all of the obvious reasons, right? Um, but there is research to suggest that um, it happened, that, that there may have been kind of marine communities in places like Barbados, which is like, notoriously flat it's just the flattest island of all time um mm. but they still would have used the environment to the to um their advantage so rather than kind of relying on things like mountains where there were none they would rely on things like gullies to kind of hide themselves um and and um stuff like that and also i guess like louisiana like the swamp terrain and stuff like that yeah exactly that's exactly right so they were using kind of the swamps um, to kind of secure their freedom, to, to find places to hide. So very much kind of using the environment wherever they could. These people are naturally romanticised as freedom fighters. Is it that simple? No, it's not that simple at all. I think I, I have to preface this by saying that plantation societies were not moral societies, you know. Mm. Um, that there was nothing moral about what was going on there. And so what does morality even look like? Um, in an immoral society. Um, so maroon communities, they, they were freedom fighters, absolutely, but there's evidence to suggest that they quite often had contracts with plantations. 
Um, so they would be able to keep their freedom so long as they brought runaway slaves back to the plantation. Okay. Um, so it becomes really, really murky. Um, so I was just talking about Tacky's War um, a yeah. second ago. So 20 years before um, Tacky's War in 1740, um, maroon communities in Jamaica signed a peace treaty um, with kind of the, the colonizers on the island because obviously um, there was lots of disrupt. And so they had 20 years of relative peace before Tacky decided that it was time to kind of enact this, this plan of grand marinage. Um, and so under, it was under the terms of the treaty that the Mar- it was the Maroons who were responsible for eventually killing Taki um, and then capturing the other members of the rebellion. So it's the Maroons um, who, who, who ended that, that act of grand marinage. Uh, and after um, that, that um, Taki's war, which went on for several months, there were 400 rebels executed. Um, wow. And 600 were sent into enslavement in um, Honduras. So they were just kind of moved off the island because of um, their role in this, this revolt. Um, so in order to kind of secure their own freedom or to kind of keep their own freedom, to continue kind of living undisturbed in these mountainous areas, um, they, they did play a role in kind of quelling this massive, massive revolt. Um, and we've seen it happen. I mean, it's happened in other places as well, not just Jamaica. Um, but yeah, marine communities would um, would sign these contracts, would sign these treaties, and as such, they would keep um, they would play a role in keeping other people enslaved, which is unfortunate. But like I said, what is morality in an immoral environment? You know, and what would you again, go to secure your own f- own freedom? If yeah, that means exactly. giving up someone else's. Yeah, exactly. It's a. It would be a, a really hard question for us to answer, right? Mm-hmm, um, absolutely. You'd like to think that you wouldn't sell other people out, but if it came down to them or you, yeah, what would you do? Mm. Tricky. You already mentioned previously that women took part in petite uh, mirage, but yeah. were there women who partook in acts of yeah so this is um the archives haven't been particularly kind to women i'm sure you guys are yeah both aware of that um (laughs) and and so yeah i'm sure you guys you know all too well about that but um yeah so so what we see is that um marinage is gendered and petty marinage is often kind of considered women's terrain but there's no reason for us to believe that they weren't involved in grand marinage and um the Caribbean historian Hilary Beckles, he's written a book about kind of um, uh, women, enslaved women in plantation societies. And he talks about kind of uh, rebellious women, naturally rebellious women. And, and what he says is that um, just because there is a lack of evidence of their, their kind of participating in grand marinage doesn't mean that it didn't necessarily happen. Um, simply because we know that... Um, you know archives tend they are biased in terms of gender also we know that archives are when coming when talking about kind of slavery there are just massive massive gaps in the archives and so I wouldn't want to say that they weren't involved I guess the most notable figure um the most notable kind of woman who was um, involved in Grand Marinage was Nanny of the Maroons Mm. um so Nanny of the Maroons was um she was enslaved from kind of present-day Ghana I believe and she was um, she was brought to Jamaica, 
Um, and she was able to kind of secure the freedom of um, a, a community of um, enslaved Africans and set up her own marine community. Um, she was skilled in guerrilla warfare um, and she's now a, a national hero of Jamaica. So they've got like a national hero park and there's like a really beautiful um, statue of Nanny there. Um, and yeah, so, so we know that women were, were involved. We know that Nanny was kind of the leader of um, a maroon uh, community of, a, of this kind of grand marinage. Um, but again, Nanny is um, romanticized by official narratives. Um, she's very much mythologized and um, she's, she's talked about in these very kind of grand terms about her being kind of very skilled in guerrilla warfare, um, about having lots of kind of ancestral spiritual knowledge and stuff like that. Um, also, what's said about her is that she was an Obia practitioner as well. Um, and one of the my favourite myths about her is that um, she could catch bullets in her butt cheeks and then oh, fire them back. If only that was true. <laughs> I, do you know what? I'm, I'm just going to say, yeah, it was true. It yeah, makes me feel a just, lot happier. Yeah, if, the, if it's on the internet somewhere, the internet doesn't lie. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, so this is kind of part of like the oral history that's been um, passed down about about Nanny, right? Is that she was this Obia woman? She would catch bullets with her butt and then shoot them back um, at the British forces. Um, and I'm here for it. Like I, I live for this this narrative per- personally. Yeah, she sounds <laughs> epic. Even if the butt cheek thing is not true, she does sound pretty epic. Uh, so yeah. you're talking about the issues with archives, and I guess these people are running off to live, like you say, in gullies and swamps and jungle. And it's they're not. It's not an environment that lends itself to like producing archival material. So mm. what can you look at to learn more about marinage in the Caribbean? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I guess uh, archivally there's very little. Um, we have kind of first-hand accounts from um, slavers, from plantation owners, from people from Europe, um, you know, these kind of first-hand accounts that archives kind of um, decided were acceptable to kind of keep, and so these are what we have. Um, but they're, they're very much kind of one-sided, a one-sided narrative of what's going on. So they're not entirely trustworthy sources, I don't think. Um, I guess um, orality and um, oral history is a very kind of important part of Caribbean culture. Um, this is something that's um, derived from kind of African traditions of yeah. orality as well. And so this is kind of some of the ways in which um, stories of marinage have been passed down. Um, and this is why we get stories. I guess this is kind of why we get kind of these um, romantic stories of um of maroons why we have these stories of nanny as kind of fantastical obia woman is because of the creative license that comes with um oral histories and i guess one of the things that i'm engaging with um at the moment is um runaway slave ads so i'm working with um northeastern union boston they've got um, a massive archive of runaway slave ads from barbados from for a period of about 40 years um and what these runaway ads do is they give us a pretty decent sense of kind of the numbers of people running away in a specific yeah. period of time. Um, also, kind of, you get a sense of um, the gender split of people running away and stuff like that. Um, and whether people were running in groups. Um, some of these ads say um, they're probably gone off to find this person from this other plantation. So we get a sense of the ways that people might, uh, that enslaved people might have been connecting across different plantations and how they might kind of organize themselves um, in kind of um, 
marine groups across um, the island. So they've been quite quite interesting to have a look at. I'm I'm very much looking uh, enjoying looking at those. At the moment. They're incredible. Some of those ads, aren't they? I've seen a couple. Oh, amazing! Yeah, and yeah. it just like the way they're worded. It's like this is a human being you're talking about. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I know, I know. It's like and a lost but- dog ad, some of them, isn't it? Yeah, but also the level of detail that some of them go into. And it's, mm. it's. I mean, I guess the tension there is that um, this is potentially, in these runaway slave ads, the most detail we get of enslaved people, right? Because they're, they're, some of them describe um, the country marks on, on people's bellies. So these would be kind of um, uh, scarification marks. Um some of them kind of talk about um there's this woman called Rosetta that's described as having like a really little hand and how her hair is and the colour of the clothes that she's wearing. So you're getting all of this detail that you would like that you cannot find anywhere else in the archives. But then the, yeah. I, I guess the tension exists because it's like you're just describing your property and you're describing them in so much detail only because you want your property back. Yeah. You know? Which and is I guess, it's just like yeah. you can't process it, can you? No, it's insane. It really, really is. It's like it, this person belongs to me. Like, like you say, it's like someone nicked your bike. It's just, it, yeah, it's mind blowing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, they've been a lot of fun to engage with. Um, and again, they kind of do this work of like problematizing um, what we know about plantation societies as well. Um, just kind of in in the um, description that they give and stuff like that. So um, I, they're definitely a great source to engage with if you're interested in marinage. So what can the study of marinage teach us about the plantation societies in the Caribbean? Yeah, I guess, um, I guess thinking about freedom, uh, thinking about fugitivity, thinking about kind of... Um, this kind of act, these these acts towards liberation or self liberation, it's just offering us this like completely other perspective of slavery in the Caribbean. And I think kind of engaging with um, marinage um, gives us a chance to think about kind of the agency of enslaved people because we're so often thinking about them only as property, you know, um, and that's partly to do with kind of the lack of um, narrative that we have about them in the archives. We, we think about uh, enslaved people in very abstract terms, but if you're 
thinking about kind of the things that they were doing in order to kind of secure their own freedom. Um, I think it adds like a really interesting um, and important dimension. And I think it's definitely a perspective that's worth pursuing if thinking about plantation societies. Um, marine communities, by their very nature, they complicate the narrative. Um, and if we engage kind of entirely, like thoroughly and properly with um, the history of marinage, it, it offers so much kind of nuance to discussions of plantation societies. And, and like I said, it complicates so many of the assumptions that we, that we so often make, right? Um, and so mm. the runaway ads are, are really interesting because they're complicating so many assumptions that we make about Caribbean society. So what a couple of things that I found really, really interesting in looking at these um, documents is that actually a lot of women ran away. A lot of women ran away. And um, lot, a lot of times um, plantation owners or enslavers would write um, multiple ads for the same people. And quite often the people that they would write multiple ads for were women, which kind of goes to show, um, I guess, A, that they were determined to, to stay away, that they, they, they hadn't been caught, but also kind of what they were worth to enslavers, which I think ties into... Um, their reproductive abilities which is why kind of taking ownership of of reproduction was so important to these women yeah it's like the only con control you can have yeah exactly and so even though it seems kind of um it seems extreme what they were doing again it's, it's about kind of agency and and being able to kind of exert some form of agency on your own life um in this kind of horrible plantation nightmare and um, the other thing that's really interesting about the slave ads that I found is that there are ads for the wives of plantation owners. Um, so this is this is white women um, running away, running away from their husbands. <laughs> Good on it's, them. <laughs> it's insane, right? It, I wasn't expecting to see it at all. But then that's really interesting for a couple of reasons. Like the first is, what does that tell us about kind of how stifling um, kind of plantation society was to women that even white the white women of powerful men were running now i want to know what about the ads to bring them back are they worded the same as the slave ones like their property yeah well this oh is the other God. thing exactly <laughs> exactly so they're, they're being kind of written about in very similar terms to the slaves and they're being they're being um put in the section for runaway slaves so again what does that tell us about um about you know women, even white women, and how they were kind of perceived and treated um, on plantation societies. I really wasn't expecting to see it at all. I was no, I was really shocked. But yeah. I was speaking of being like shocked. This is something Alina and I get. She does concentration camps, and I do the First World Wars. So we get that you have to sit and read through a lot of upsetting yeah. stuff. What what can you tell us about your research? With the, apart from like the white women, what has really sucker punched you question are their children runaways as well do you know i've not i've not come across as many yeah. children runaways um i think the um honestly i think the amount of detail that these people are described in really sucker punched me because mm. i genuinely wasn't expecting it and just the fact that they're being described in in all of this detail and this is potentially the most detail that I will get about my ancestors because they ran away only because someone wants to get their property back um, is, a, is a kind of tension that 
I found really difficult to um, to kind of articulate or to kind of understand or to accept. Like there's just some, you know, and I think because when we talk about um, the slave trade, so often we talk about it in such abstract terms. You know, we talk about um, the enslavement of millions of people, which is absolutely true. But when we're talking about millions of people, it's hard to find the one person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and because there's so little about kind of individual people archivally, um, it almost becomes this like really abstract thing that you're dealing with. Um, but then when we kind of go in and we look at like very specific people, that's when it, to me, it becomes really difficult to swallow. And I think this is why I really like um, using fiction as a way of like, of kind of furthering my understanding. I think fiction plays a really, really important role. Mm. Um, because of the, the kind of the recorded gaps in the archive, um, fiction acts as a neo-archive, if you like. It, yeah. it kind of creates narratives um, where there are none historically. And so books like uh, The Book of Night Women by Marlon James, um, which is set on a plantation in Jamaica, and it, um, it talks about a group of women who, who plot a nationwide rebellion. They plot, plot an act of grand marinage. Um, and and uh, Marlon James has clearly done like a wealth of research. He knows what he's doing, but what he does instead of kind of um, creating this kind of massive massive narrative is he just kind of focuses in and kind of doing that that focused work um, with all of the violence um, kind of entangled in plantation life and the ways that he describes it. It's like a, it's a that to me is like a punch to the gut. You know? Yeah to actually assess the feelings in that because these people were unable to leave theirs behind that someone has gone and, and thought about yeah. how they would have felt. I, it's a different kind of history, but I agree. It's one that does definitely boost your understanding of the field, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. There, there are some really amazing um, books by Caribbean writers, which kind of do this new archival work. And I think they, they can offer us so much in terms of kind of how we understand um, the Caribbean, how we understand plantation society, how we understand marinage as well, just by giving us the opportunity to think about um, specifics, you know, where we don't always get that opportunity um, in the archives because of their gaps. If marinage is, in its broader sense, about a pursuit of freedom, what does marinage look like in a contemporary context? It's exciting to me to think about kind of legacies of marinage um, and how this kind of spirit of, of resistance and liberation lives on in the Caribbean. And I can think of like a few examples um, of, of it. So um, Caribbean carnival, for example, is a massive part of um, the culture of several islands, one being Trinidad. Mm. Um, in Trinidad, carnival dates back to the 18th century and it in its kind of first incantation incarnation, it was um, a, a really elaborate masquerade um, that was only kind of attended by um, the kind of uh, the, the the enslavers and free coloured people, um, and it would it would happen just before Lent, and it was like a massive party just before they were about to go and start fasting, um, and um, enslaved people weren't allowed to. Um, to participate. Um, so after the emancipation of enslaved people in, in 1838, um, they used carnival, uh, they kind of reclaimed this carnival, or claimed carnival, um, as a celebration of freedom and defiance. And what they would do is they would go around and burn cane and carry it around. Um, and they call this can brûlé, which is kind of like a, a play on creme brûlée, burnt, huh. burnt sugar. Um, 
they would use drums so they would kind of use um sort of the the drums um that they they brought with them from uh, africa um and a chantuel or a lead singer would kind of lead songs um and they would sing about kind of the politics current affairs their feelings and stuff like that and then in 1881 um african percussion music was banned from the islands um but that has since transformed itself into the instruments that we now know as still pans yeah still pans are still very much a very kind of central part of caribbean culture um is that because they took the actual drums away yeah so they would start Ah. kind of fashioning percussion instruments from things like frying pans um oil pans um anything they could find and it's eventually turned into what we now have um which is the still the still drum or the still pan i did not know that yeah um and they're such i mean still pans are like central in trinidad carnival in notting hill carnival in different carnivals around um around the Caribbean as well. Like they're, they're still really, really central um, parts of, of um, the tradition. And even kind of this tradition of Kambule um, is, is still one that's carried forward um, today. Um, so um, even like in, um, in Grenada, which is where my family's from, they have um, a tradition called Jab. Uh, mm-hmm. And back in the day, what they would do is um, they would dress, they would cover themselves in like black paint and black tar. And they would walk around and jab, of like um a creole word for for devil basically because the planters called them devils they treated them like devils so guess what we're going to dress up like devils yeah and and scare the shit out of you basically (laughs) and this is (laughs) and this is but this is something that we still do um we still do today we still kind of dress up in uh not dress up we, we paint ourselves black and we take to the road and um we kind of you know it's the spirit of resistance is still very much kind of integral to carnival now even though kind of notting hill carnival is as some people describe it as like um europe's biggest street party or whatever mm. um, but actually even like even notting hill carnival notting hill carnival was uh, founded in 1959 as in response to the notting hill race riots right so it's yeah. kind of like a celebration in response so politics is still very much at the root of notting hill carnival um it's not just kind of a celebration of all of these wonderful different Caribbean cultures that have, you know, found their way to, to London and have very much kind of influenced London culture in some of the best ways. Um, but it's also about kind of this kind of act of resistance, um, this, this act of agency and this act of kind of um, bringing forward some of those traditions, even some of the kind of less pretty ones. And even, even still actually, um, in carnivals, I'm sure you guys have seen like carnival costumes that they're, they're yeah. usually very big and feathered and beautiful. There's very stones colourful. everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. The bigger the better. It's it's all wonderful. And um, but again, that that that's kind of um, reclaiming the original kind of 18th century masquerades where they were very kind of elaborate affairs that enslaved people weren't allowed to be part of. So now, what do they do? They have very very elaborate affairs, but they've reclaimed. Um, that tradition and they've made it kind of something that's very um, unique to to them. Um, in Karakou, Karakou is um, a very small island. This is where my mum's from. It's a mm. sister island of Grenada. There are, I think it's about 13 square miles and there are about 6,000 people on that island. It's great. It's perfect. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing <laughs> right now. Yeah, yeah, honestly. Like, I, in fact, my mum was... Um, she was there just before the lockdown hit. So she was, she ended up staying for four months instead of the six weeks she was meant to be there. Oh, genius. Um, 
I know. And she was like, oh, no, I want to get home. Why? Yeah. (laughs) Just add in the gin and tonic and I might never have come home. Exactly. Like the beach is right there. Like, what are you moaning about? Anyway. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, Karakou is a tiny island. And and I think because it's a tiny island, um, the way that it's been able to kind of hold on to some of its kind of African derived traditions is quite different because of its size. Um, But even in Karakou, and I'm not entirely sure about the kind of maroon traditions in uh, Karakou, but they have a maroon festival every year where they, um, it's very much kind of like a music festival. So they're playing drums and they're kind of doing traditional dances. And they have um, a tradition called the big drum dance, which is um, you've got drummers and then you've got uh, women who dance. um, And they've got all of these different songs and all of the different songs are named for all of the different um, tribes um, where enslaved people came from. So you've got dances like the Coromanti, you have um, the Temne, you've got um, the Ibo, like lots and lots of different ones. Mm. Um, and this is still something that's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of dying out now because this is the sad thing about kind of traditions is that you're not always able to keep hold of all of them. And so it's been practiced less and less, but it is still being practiced. Um, through these kind of mar- maroon festivals, it's practiced kind of traditionally at um, funerals, if you have wakes and stuff like that, also at weddings. Um, and again, this, this to me is, an, is kind of like a contemporary act of marinage because it's um, a very kind of deliberate way of holding on to a culture or several cultures that um, enslavers tried so desperately to take away from people, you know. The very fact that um, we still do these dances, we still sing these songs, we still drum um, in the same ways that we have been drumming for centuries. Mm. To me, that is an act of marinage, you know, and it's, it's incredible. Um, there was a bit of research done um, because they found direct links between people in Karakou and people in Sierra Leone from the Temne tribe. And so they had people from Sierra Leone come over to this tiny island yeah. um, and, and drum with people from Karakou, you know, and talk about all of the, the kind of connections. So we, we've seen the way that, you know, the, the connections between Africa and the Caribbean, um, they exist not even kind of in, in no sort of abstract way. We're talking like, you know, we can see the connections. People in Karakou still hold the surname Temne, for example. Mm. Um, and the fact that, you know, we're able to kind of make those connections, I think that is in itself an act of resistance. It's an act of, of petty marinage. And um, it's, yeah, I think it's amazing. It makes me really excited. It just, I, this has been amazing for us. So thank you so much for coming on to share some of your heritage with us and your work as a historian as well, looking at marinage and slavery um, and its impact. It just, it's incredible. Are you working on a book or anything at the moment? Um, I am trying to turn, so I did a PhD looking at um, matrifocality and family structures in the Caribbean and I'm trying very hard to turn that into a book. You know, when you finish a PhD and you just kind of don't want to, ever look at it again (laughs) (laughs) i've been in that stage for about six months so i'm trying very hard to kind of like pull myself out of it and and get to write in this book oh do write something and best of luck with it and if there's anyone listening that's interested in publishing it do get in touch with leanne because it's a fascinating subject and something we all need to know more about thank you
Join us tomorrow when Mark Kramer will be with us for pole position. He'll be talking to us all about Solidarność. And then Alexander Lahman will be celebrating the release of his new book, The Crown in Crisis, which deals with Edward VIII and the abdication. I had a blast recording that with him for obvious reasons. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.